welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features a member of the Myanmar diaspora who has decided to remain anonymous due to security concerns for her family still inside Myanmar. Ama is an activist and campaigner living in an undisclosed location in Europe. She, like many Myanmar citizens abroad, now lives in fear of what the military could do to her family back home as a result of her activism. In recent weeks, there has been a marked increase in the military's intimidation and threats towards family members of activists outside of the country. Ama, like so many in the diaspora, works tirelessly to raise awareness and funds for her people and her country. Here she speaks about the atrocities committed by the military, the difficulties many in the diaspora encounter while trying to balance their two realities, as well as the weak international response to Myanmar in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Let's start the conversation. Hi, lovely to speak with you today and thank you so much for coming on. Here we have Amma talking to us from a location in Europe and thank you for joining us this morning. So good morning, um, I'm Amma. Uh, I'm living in Europe for more than five years. I left Pamara some five years ago for some family reasons and uh, now I'm actively participating as a Burmese diaspora in Europe and all the uh, activities around Burmese Spring. So we were just saying how the situation, you know, it's more than a year, things are not getting any better. Um, And I know there's a lot of people like you and people around the world trying their best. Can you kind of just give us an update on what the current situation is in Myanmar? I feel like the news is just not coming out anymore. The current situation in Myanmar, this is pretty silent these days in the European media or international media, even with the Burmese media, because the other disturbing, uh, I don't want to say disturbing, but this is more about Ukraine and the potential, you know, threat of the world world. However, the situation in Burma is pretty deteriorating and not getting better and even worse and worse because the military people are continuing their atrocities against its own Burmese people. So it means one year. And according to the sum of the digits, according to the AAPP Association, it is about more than 1,000 deaths, civilians' deaths, and more than 10,000 in prisons. However, these figures are extremely, extremely underestimated because they are recording just for those with the complete information. But we can guess and we can imagine that the numbers are more than these numbers. And a lot of families, according to the UN, it is more about, you know, 400,000 people are fleeing their home. And we don't even know how many people are losing their life in, you know, in fleeing. And we don't even know how many people are losing their lives when they were staying at home because it's simply just we're not able to record it very uh, systematically. So the situation is extremely, um, how to say, worrying and it's still going on. And, and it's not only inside, it's also outside Burma because, you know, a lot of Burmese people, Burmese diaspora people are working and supporting NUG, the National Unity Government. And supporting in different ways. However, they, their families inside Myanmar are, are threatened these days. 
Yeah, I was just going to mention that. So like we obviously we have kept your your name. We were not using your name and we're not revealing your exact location in Europe due to this very reason. So talk to us about how that works. Did the military actually track its citizens abroad and make a list of their family members? Is that is that what's happening? I don't know how it's exactly happening. For example, very recently, some of the celebrities are not very well known for, for fundraising for the uh, People Defend Forces. And uh, their houses were closed and their houses were sealed and definitely Mammy's numbers are under threat. And so I think this is just the beginning. And that is sort of, you know, provoking fear and provoking something, you know, worried among the diaspora because this is not against themselves. It is against their family under threat. And so maybe it is not really visible in the media, but it is still, you know, ongoing and intensifying the happenings. I think it was either this week or the week before it made the news that there was a two-year-old child that died in prison. I think for me personally, what's very shocking about this military attack of the Burmese people is that it includes the family. They don't just take an individual. They will target the family and the concept of putting a child of that age into prison because of suspicion of their parent is just absolutely bizarre and something unparalleled like other invasions. So this is really atrocious. I think it is even inimaginable in Western and in other countries, in other any countries outside Myanmar, I would say. So it's not only children, their families. For example, I hear say two days ago that an NLD member, and she she is hiding uh, actually, and her mother is still in Yangon, and uh, and the military came in and asked her to close down the house and ask her her mother to leave the house. So she was saying that her mother was saying that, you know, this is the only house where I, I have to live and she can't. But, you know, this is the order, the military order. And so it is not a single, you know, it is not an isolated case. It's coming more and more frequent. And uh, so they are really, um, I think the military people, are, now they understand uh, the the strength and the power of the people outside and their support, financial in other uh, types of support. They really understand how they're powerful. And they try to really make you know, introduce fear among these people. And tell me a little bit then about the kind of things that the diaspora are doing, because obviously, like I know a lot of the diaspora here in Europe, in, in different countries like Ireland, Italy, France, Czech Republic, and we're seeing more and more in the news of, of really great developments. Like we've seen uh, the Czech Republic, the NUG getting access to bank accounts, having a representative. In France recently, we saw it come up in Parliament that there was support for recognition of NUG so what kind of, and I know the diaspora in Ireland recently met with, with members of the Department of Foreign Affairs there too. So there are developments, but it seems slow. What are what are the diaspora doing or, or what could they be doing more of to assist? I would see what they are doing, the diaspora, in two, two main things. Number one is to make the gender, the illegitimate representative of Myanmar. This is all about you know, to push the military people out of power. And the second thing is to push again our government, what we call the national unity government, to be more recognized, to have a strength. So it is supporting the NUG. In terms of, you know, the SAC or the Honta, what we all are doing is, number one, is to cut the revenue. So that is what happened with the sanctions from the you know, recently, the European Parliament had adopted the resolution to sanction goods list of the enterprises 
and individuals, you know, having the business with the military people. So this is a real good one. And the second one is not the sanction, but by all the activities around and by the, uh, but for example, Black Money Campaign and all the diaspora and pushing Total and the Chevron out of the business from Bummer and cutting the business with the, the military people. So this is really cutting the gender and from their revenue. And the second one, I think, which is important is recently the French parliament, the lower parliament has voted an, a resolution where they included the SEC, the military, not to be the representative of the bomber. And that needs to be recognized by French government and the European governments, you know, governments from the European countries and then from the international organization. It means that it could be the United Nations and the other international organizations. It is really, really pushing the contact, the military people out of the power. On the other hand, is the supporting our legitimate government, the national unity government. And so when we are supporting, we know that the resistant, the armed resistant is the, the key of the current situation. So for this armed revolution, I think what we need is the fundraising. And so a lot of Burmese diaspora people are really uh, fundraising to support the uh, PDF. And on the other hand, from the diplomatic way, so making sure with, you know, at the energy members, energy uh, cabinets and the ministers have a good relationship with collaboration with the European governments and the parliament members. So you may recently hear that, you know, in France, the two ministers from the energy are meeting with parliament members and the government members. Uh, it is the same in Austria, in Norway, in Sweden and in Czech. So I think having the diplomatic relations and government-to-government relationships are getting much better and much more official these days. So what we're doing is really pushing out of the power for winter and and giving more recognition and collaboration for the energy in Europe. And just tell me a little bit about why that recognition is so important. Why is it needed? What will the difference be for Myanmar if the NUG gets that international recognition? Like a lot of people don't seem to understand the importance of it. They they think it's a time to criticize the NUG, or, but I believe it's such an important thing right now. Can you tell us a little bit about why? So the recognition is a sort of the term we, we are still debating. So because, if, for example, in some European countries and most of the European countries, they cannot recognize a government. They can just recognize a state. And so there's a, some discussion around, should we call a government? Should we do the recognitions? As long as, you know, we're, we're working together, we understand by working with these governments. And what they want is more hands-in-hands collaboration rather than using the terminology recognition. You know, working together is a sort of recognition without stating we recognize the NUG. So there's a, some nuances between. I think what they really wish the European governments is more working together for humanitarian aids, especially for the refugees around the borders, and then to make sure that these governments, the NUG government, have more uh, characteristics of a true government and the state, which is not yet there. So while maybe they are playing a little bit of the game in the European countries, they wanted to have for the humanitarian aid. However, on the other hand, what we really need is no-fly zone. What we really need is, you know, the support to the armed resistance. And I think they're not yet there. So the recognition is awarded that I think the energy government is less used now because they are really hands-in-hands collaboration with some governments, the European governments. But this is extremely important. Uh, already, I think 
Well, we can say that at the UN, we already had a seat. NEG had a seat. This is a sort of a recognition without saying, we recognize you. So I think we are getting better and better in terms of recognition without using this, you know, the recognition. So in terms then of the NUG, we have these supporters groups all around the world doing their bit to help. But we are more than one year. People have families. They have jobs. They have other commitments. How do people keep going? How do they stay motivated? Do you see more and more of the diaspora as committed as ever? Or do you see them slipping away slowly since the start of this? Well, to be honest, for those outside Bamar, you know, we are living in two realities. Number one is the emotional realities. This is our home country, my families, you know, my friends and my region, my town and my country that I love. And certainly my food, you know, sort of all about emotional reality. And this is day really 24 hours a day. And the other one is the true reality. You have a job, you have a family in where you are, are living and you have other, you know, commitments in your private life. So we are facing two realities. These realities, we've been living for more than one year. Certainly, you know, there's a sort of a fatigue happening. There's a sort of, we've been working for one year, but the hope is there. However, slow moving. The feeling of slow moving is very, very, well, how to say, important for us. And so I think we ask, I don't want to say we are stepping away. Some of them are stepping away. However, changing the mode. We cannot be, you know, 100% present in both two realities. So, for example, in my case, I'm stepping away from some activities, from the emotional reality and from my physical, you know, true reality, you know, a day-to-day life, but try to readjust it and try to prioritize which is the most impactful. Try to prioritize which is the most important and the most ardent and making sure some of them become later. I think that is how we are trying to adopt the new way of living. But I think the power and the strength, I think maybe it's changed a little bit in form, but I think we're not, you know, stepping away from where we believe to go. So it's more like people are just finding ways to do this long term. So, I mean, at the 90 mile an hour, people were working, you know, back in February, March last year. It's not sustainable. I think everyone, yeah, yeah, it's just readjusting, as you say, but everyone is fighting just as hard. But I feel like in the last week or two, like from talking to people, like they've got electricity power cuts six, six, seven hours a day. Internet is shut off in large parts of the country. So is this going back in time? People have been here before um, and nobody wants this, but as the information is harder to trickle out and, uh, you know, the military is even threatening the diaspora and their families, how do we break through that and how do people keep keep going? So I think it is very difficult to live when you have already get, you know, 24 hours a day, the electricity and the internet some years ago, even some two years ago, and now the people in, in the country are really suffering all these things. The other day I saw a Facebook post saying that, you know, okay, you hit the electrical power and electrical pie, so that's why you don't have any more electricity. You hit the mitral, you know, sort of internal things, so you get cut off all, all this internet. And I think I would translate it as, you know, what we did, what they did, what we all did is really impacting the military people and their business. And they're feared and they're afraid. So what they can do is just repression. What they can do is introducing fear and fear more and more again. 
And so I think, and we all have the families, we all have fear on this. However, you know, the more they try to repress, I think maybe for instance, for some, you know, some weeks or something like that, maybe we'd be listening a little bit of silence, but I don't think, you know, it is rooted. The hate is now rooted and no one wants anymore this military regime. And we all wanted to go back to our freedom and the, you know, freedom of expression and that we will find another way to resist. And I'm sure we will find it a way. What would you like to see more from in the diaspora, particularly here in Europe? Like, would you like to see more collaboration between countries? Is that ongoing or are you all working individually in each country or is there more coordination together? I think I've never seen the Bamis diaspora, you know, uh, united in this way. You know, you know, we all have diverse arguments, beliefs. But now these days, I think we all are united. This is really the byproduct of the resistance. You know, we get united. We have one voice and uh, we try to adopt each other, become more tolerant. Even. And so I think this is very positive. What could we do in the future? I think, well, we continue the fundraising. I think this is important. And the second thing is try to make Burmese causes and the Burmese, you know, happenings again in the media. These days, Ukraine is really overwhelming everywhere. Maybe this is a time we can make a pause and maybe some weeks later, we can come back differently because we have to really make the awareness campaign and to bring more help, different ways of help, humanitarian help or diplomatic, everything. I think we need to do this. The Ukraine is a good lesson for us, for all of us, not only for Burmese diaspora or the Burmese people, but also for the international organization and the government. So I think it shouldn't happen in Southeast Asia, in the Pacific region. So I think the instability and the, you know, the lack of democracy, the lack of the freedom and in Burma, it is not a Burma issue. It is a Southeast Asian issue. And that could have a domino effect in the region, and we need to be very careful. This could be prevented currently before becoming too late for the region. That we need to really work on with the international governments and the diplomatic, and as well as for the humanitarian organization. I don't know um, whether you know any more on this, and I, it was just something that I read this morning about Russia supplying arms to Myanmar military. I mean, the West right now, I'm in, I'm in the UK and the news is just saturated with kind of anti-Russian, pro-Ukraine stuff. And Myanmar is very much part of that story as well in terms of, like you've just said, the Southeast Asia potential domino effect. There's talk of us going into like a new Cold War, the Cold War's already begun and all this kind of thing. Myanmar is not an isolated situation in this. It's very much involved in terms of Russia's involvement with that side of things. So like you've just said, bringing into awareness that this is a much bigger picture than just this, not to undermine the invasion of Ukraine, but this is an ongoing picture that has been going for a long time and Myanmar is very much a part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, recently, there is an Indo-Pacific Forum in Europe organized by France. And I think they were really working how to, I think, get into better by Europe, you know, in this region. And uh it is not really military. Their interest is much more social, cultural, and certainly economical. And the way they are facing or the way they are reacting from Europe against the Ukraine issue 
is, you know, it was military against military, but at the beginning, it started with sanctions. So the power of the soft power against the tyranny and the military seems to be working. And then I think there are some interesting things around it for Indo-Pacific, I think. If the Europe has a much integration or intervention, but social, cultural, and economic, and which is much needed in this region, you know, Southeast Asia countries are not that much rich, but with a lot of resources, but they are not, you know, rich in terms of the, you know, international measurements and the characteristics. So the way we prevent the way the Europe work through the economic and cultural and social seems to be very good. However, there's a hot topic and the emergency issue in Myanmar. So that introduced the fragility in the region. And I think we should stop this one and then coming back with the economic and the social. I think that would be the good way. Maybe I'm, I'm not a politician, but that's sort of a, a simple layperson and a living in Europe and with much interest in Myanmar. I think that is the way we would hope. But the emergency issue is we get rid of these military people from power and getting the democratic transition in the region and to make sure, you know, all the other you know, associated developments could happen. I think one of the things like, and as you say, it's worth pointing out, Ruth, actually, that Ukraine also sold arms to the Myanmar military, but that's another story. But they also, <laughs> but uh, in terms of looking at Zelensky, uh, who's captured the hearts of the world with his leadership. And when you look around the world, we don't see leadership. I don't see leadership anywhere. I can't point to a single country where I think, oh, there's someone who can lead us all. And also, I think without being critical of the NUG, there seems to be a lack of leadership of somebody like we have a spokesperson, you know, not a leader. You know, we have Dr. Sasa that we see a lot. But I feel like there's no one because the leaders are in captivity. They're imprisoned and we don't know them. We don't see them. Do you think that, that that lack of like someone like a face, like, I mean, for decades, Aung San Suu Kyi was the face and the West were captured by this this lady. And now we don't have a leader. Do you think having some face and some leader would would help? You're hitting the you know, very sensitive issue. And I, I appreciate that you bring it to this discussion. I think the Ukraine president make a discourse at the European Parliament. And it was very powerful. and. They challenged Europe instead of asking. And I think that's the, the way the differently he was expressing. He needs help, but he asked the helps by challenging the Europe. You know, so I think, I think his way of doing the leadership is really extremely good. But I think, well, I think to be honest, energy need a little bit of more leadership. I understand that we don't have a single person to be more vocal in our situation because the situations are completely different. This is my personal, you know, uh, thinking. And uh, on the other hand, in Ukraine, it is government already. It is already in place. He is the elected president governing his country. He is really sitting in more comfortable position and he is in his home. But with the NUG, it is not the case. So I think they are trying, they still are hiding, you know, they still are are threatened by the military people and even in the border area, even in the, you know, for example, the Thai border area, you know, they have to hide, they have to, they cannot go out of their houses or their hiding places as we can. So I think there are lots of situations that we cannot. But on the other hand, you know, the, the leadership, I think we can be more vocal. We can be more concerted. We can be more honestly, aligned way of a communication. 
I think we can always do better. But I think, you know, I'm not criticizing, but we can do much better. Yeah, and I think the thing is with the leadership as well is sometimes I feel like you have to talk to the people as much as the international community. You know, it's the people on the ground that are, you know, that you need to hold on and fight. That's who the leaders need to speak to. And and I actually think Zelensky does that so well. And if we can take something from what he's doing for, for the Myanmar situation, I think we can learn a lot from their situation. But it is a completely different situation. We know that because it's an external invasion as opposed to within countries, they already have their own military, whereas in Myanmar, the military is literally what who's killing the people. So it is very complex. But I just think his leadership has been fantastic. And I mean, who would have known that sanctions could happen so quickly? You know, we we believe sanctions can't happen. And yet here we have countries putting the biggest sanctions in the world overnight on Russia. So it's very disappointing when we look at still no arms embargo for Myanmar, you know, no fly zone. And even though we've had Mogi sanctions in Europe, we still haven't got them in the US, you know. So it's frustrating. Uh, it's frustrating when countries don't have a stake like they do in, in Ukraine or, you know, obviously geopolitically something bad for Europe. But it's frustrating and it's very frustrating. But why wouldn't this happen? Because, you know, the world has not reacted to any situation, the Myanmar situation, the Syria situation. So, I mean, in in some ways you're enabling this behavior and it's inevitable if you keep allowing these tyrants and these dictators to get away with this. And Myanmar, yeah, you know, something has to happen. Something has to give. Or or what do we have? Another North Korea or, you know. That's what I was thinking. And, you know, how you sell your story, you know, it's politic. It's really dealing with lives. However, how you sell your stories is really something important, especially these days, you know, we are a little bit of post-truth era. We all sell the stories. And I think the Ukraine story, let's see, crisis, because Europe is threatened and threatened in, in all ways, economic, military, and all the lives of the Europeans. When it's talking to the nuclear, you know, I think we all are threatened. So, so far, you know, 8,000 kilometers away or 10,000 kilometers away from Europe, Burma is. And I think the threat is not really tangible and physical. So this is the number one. Number two is the lack of European strategy, economic, cultural, social strategy in Indo-Pacific that drivers, you know, who is interested in Burma in European countries? Who has the most relationship with Burma? I think maybe UK only. Other European countries, maybe France, because of total. Not total is leaving, nothing left. So why should I put a lot of money and energy and a lot of things? You know, it's all about give and take. Why shouldn't take a lot of things, energies for getting nothing back? So what I'm thinking is that the strategy and the interest from Europe in this Southeast Asia region, that is extremely important. It is not today. It is for long run. I think they have to prepare for this. And I think what we can do is the Burma issues could be the sort of domino effect because that can deteriorate, you know, very rapidly. Or if we can win back the democracy in Burma, you know, I think other countries like Thailand, like Cambodia could come up with, okay, take Burma as, take Myanmar as an example. And we can, we can fight for the democracy. We can fight for the freedom of the expression and we can fight for maybe democratic lives and that maybe uh, alternative way of the economic, you know, development and the prosperity. I think we can do this kind of story. I mean, that will be a long run, 
So um, I think we, we have to make sure that I'm not a specialist, however, but I think uh, Burmese is something extremely interesting economically, culturally, and socially in the region and the geopolitically saying, and that we need to bring back this country to the democracy for a long-term you know, collaboration with Europe. That's the only thing that I'm thinking. Otherwise, that will be really, well, we all are frustrated. You know, it took really one year just for having, you know, small amount of the sanctions. And that, you know, in 24 hours, it's more than 400, I think, from European sanctions against Russia. The switch is completely cut off. All these things so much powerful because they are threatened. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, Europe have much better neighbours than Myanmar, it seems, because we see <laughs> we see neighbouring countries really stepping up here. But in terms of, I guess, like Thailand, who have their own issues in terms of, you know, their own yes. pro-democracy activists who are fighting hard there, too. So I guess for a lot of the Asian states, they wouldn't want the military to be taken out because then maybe they would feel fragile themselves. But obviously, the instability in the region is not good for them either. So. But ASEAN need to do something, do more. And But what can we here in Europe do, like regular people in countries as well as the diaspora, in order to try to, you know, help the situation? I think what we can do, you know, all the people in Europe is making aware of the potential threats and the potential advantages, you know, what's happening in Myanmar. You know, this is the time we have to react I think even a little bit late, but I think this is the time we have to react. So make awareness among all the people, in sort of lay people, as well as the politicians and the government and the help. I think bring helps by sharing the information, by defending the rights, the human rights in Myanmar people, or Myanmar people, by defending as well a strong and political and the humanitarian aids to their government. By this way, I think we can bring back a little bit Myanmar in the media, in the government's you know, discussion, and bring true help, not only statements, but the true help on ground. So you have much wider, louder voices. You know your country, and you know how it works, your government. You know how the activists and the organization could help. You know much better than us. You know much better than the diaspora. So I think. Please bring us true help that's really tangible, practical, and that will really go to the ground. So please speak with your government members, if you are able to. Please speak with your parliament people. And maybe media and maybe some other lay people are spreading the information and that the people are still suffering in Myanmar. And by helping them, we can bring some benefits back to us. There's a, a lot of talk in the UK currently about sanctions on Russian people currently in the country and wealthy families with children here, studying here. I know it's the case for Myanmar as well, that a lot of military families maybe don't necessarily agree with what's happening, but they are military families and are very wealthy because of what is happening abroad. Is this the kind of thing that you think should be supported, sanctions on families and relations I mean, you've explained that the diaspora who are opposed to the military feel targeted. Do you think it would be a good international intervention if military families were sanctioned and bank accounts frozen? I think all means are good. I think sanctioning these individuals is really good. 
we already had a list from the European sanctions, but I'm not sure yet it is really implemented. So I think we make sure a good list is already in the sanction list, and then really it makes really happen implemented the sanctions are. So I think, please, yes, this is really important. Just carrying on from that, do you think if it were, you know, the, the general's children and grandchildren that are in universities in America and, and the UK and throughout Europe, if it hit them personally, like actually not necessarily financially, but their, their family being stopped from their education, would that have more of an impact than perhaps, I don't know, the financial sanctions that aren't directly affecting them? Well, to be honest, I think they would be very much useful. But if you can bring some bigger, you know, sanctions, because that would take a lot of time to individually hit. And uh, we shouldn't lose any more time with these people now. So personally, I would prioritize, you know, bigger one stone, but you know, hitting thousands rather than, you know, small stones hitting individually. But I think if each and every individual in Europe can bring small stones, I think that means that, you know, you really try to sanction these individuals and their families. That is great. If not, other bigger actions are, are doable. I mean, again, talking from a UK perspective, but it's been massive news here. Things like ballets from Russian performers and circuses with Russian performers have been cancelled here and they really targeted it hard. And I just feel like, yes, there's an invasion in terms of Ukraine, but that's just a border that's been created over history, which is basically Putin's argument. In Myanmar, you've, you've got two-year-olds dying in prison because of the military. Yet yeah, it's it's not taken as seriously. And yes, the perceived effect of the fact that it's Western Europe. I find it so frustrating that because it's seen as an invasion, because we've got this border, that therefore it's in some way more serious than a civil war that is a military killing its own people. It's, it's a bizarre concept to me. And I'm actually individually not supportive of, you know, penalising generations who may have links because it's not necessarily their fault. But the fact that instantly that's a consideration for this is just it's quite an eye opener for how much power actually international bodies do have. And it really highlights their inaction in terms of Myanmar and, and other places like Syria, that they could have done more when they want to, really. I was thinking aloud repeatedly this issue because, you know, what happened in Myanmar is really the human rights issue in the crime against humanity. And there's a lot of countries and a lot of places over the world, you know, where a small a group of people, especially with armed people and the military people, committing crimes against humanity. Is there any action or sanctions or any anything useful, impactful, really hitting the issue? No. No, I mean, if anything, I mean, I said prior to Ukraine, with Myanmar, I've lost all faith and hope in the UN as an institution and a body, and it needs to be dismantled and it needs to disappear because it is absolutely useless. I mean, it, it serves no purpose and it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money that could go somewhere else. But it's a mockery when you have Russia and China sitting with veto powers. It's, it's a joke and, and they're making a mockery of the whole system. I don't think it will survive the Ukraine situation. I mean, I think it will have to either be dismantled or it will have to be built or, or transformed in some way because it is not fit for purpose. I think it's been clear. But this is really brought to the forefront now. So I don't know what the, the future of the UN is, but in its current state, I don't see it being helpful. But 
And even when we look, as you're saying, things like sanctions, all of these punishments and how quickly, like, I mean, Visa and MasterCard have stopped in Russia today. I'm just like, wow, that's huge. Like, I mean, you know, we can't get an arms embargo to stop giving the Myanmar military weapons. Like, we can't even get that, which is crazy when you think about it. But also, I see this no-fly zone. It's coming up again and again because, obviously, Ukraine are asking for it, too. And now I didn't realize like there was so many experts on Twitter for no fly zones. There's so many experts on Twitter, you know, but we're seeing this argument come up, which is slightly different from Myanmar's situation, because they're saying in Ukraine, you know, you're really asking NATO countries to shoot down Russian planes. Well, no, you're asking Russia not to fly. If they choose not to, you know what I mean? Like, so it's a tricky one, but obviously it's not the same situation in Myanmar. And if they stop selling aviation fuel, and if there is a no-fly zone, then they cannot drop the bombs they're dropping on the civilians. Can you give me an argument of why we shouldn't do that? Because uh, <laughs> I'm struggling to see why that's not happening. I think we should we should ask for no-fly zone. We should ask for the you know uh, the sanctions for the fuels. We should ask for the embargo, targeted and embargo, not only for Myanmar. I think we can always ask. But the question now here is: Is it implementable? Is it truly feasible? And then even we do the no-fly zone, Honda, they will do whatever they want. They don't really care of whatever the sanctions. To be honest, European sanction, US sanction, maybe that will be impacting. But they have alternative ways. Well, now Russia is in war. But otherwise, before, you know, they don't really care of the whole world because they are backed up by China and Russia. And they have sufficient. And then Asia, ASEAN, ASEAN is not working, you know, uh, they will be doing for themselves. And themselves itself is not democracy in Myanmar, because otherwise that will be spreading out to their country and they will be making themselves the troubles, you know, these governments. So I think they don't really care at the end, Europe, US, whatever, the sanctions, because they will be impacting less, to be honest. And so the, the, the other way around, we try to, to weaken the gender, but on the other hand, why not supporting the, the energy? So for me, support. You know, work with energy. Try to make one or two territories in Myanmar with energy. Maybe this is more feasible in that way. Because whatever we do, the content don't care. Will not care of whatever we do, the sanctions. And they will be repressing more and more to the people inside Myanmar. And we don't want to end up like 1988 event. We don't want any more 30 years of, you know, military and autocracy. So that's why. Why not working together with energy? And why energy not requesting directly like Ukraine president did? Give us arms. Give us this and that. Be brave in that way. So why not? So I think, well, let's try to do something feasible and implementable and concretely. And so far, we only have ourselves. That means Burmese diaspora for Burmese people. I'm frustrated that, you know, you know, other governments are really, really lacking of their willingness to intervene with the energy. Yeah, and when you say it there, just like all you have is yourselves, and it's so true, like you've been abandoned, the Myanmar has been abandoned by everybody, and all yes. that's left is, is the people who have each other and then those outside. And like I know so many diaspora who are doing, like they're donating most of their salary, some have taken second jobs to send money home, you know what I mean? They're doing everything in their power, but they just need some support from the international community you know they, they can't do it like unfortunately they do need that support and whether that's as you say selling them arms or whether it's uh you know opening you know humanitarian corridors whatever needs to happen but 
I feel like the problem with the West is that they throw money at the problem. We'll send in humanitarian aid. Well, how about we take out the person who's putting us in this situation every time instead? And then, you know, that will be a better use of money. But uh, I just don't know Minang Lang's game, what he wants, what his plan is, his vision for Myanmar's future. He wants to take it back centuries where he is the emperor. I mean, it's bizarre. I don't understand it. Well, I think that they think differently, and that is why they, they make the coup. If I were him, I would never make the coup <laughs> for the interest of the people, you know. So I think, well, the, the bizarre way of thinking is the, the standard way of thinking in the army, the Myanmar army. So it's very, very important to know that they, they don't really care of the people at the end. So at the end, I know we, we all are working the diaspora people, you know, sort of, even though you are saving and sending your whole salary, I think that will never come to the million. You know, I'm not a rich person and neither. I will never be able to, to send a one million of euros or dollars or pounds, you know, sort of to the country. So I think that's why, you know, we need the other people. We need the local people and the organizations who could really support us in different ways and uh, legally as well. I think because in Ambabu has a lot of legal implications. You know, I'm not a specialist neither. But I think there's a lot of way physical, you know, legally, where we really need the other people. And when you say it as well, like with, with the arms, countries are like just throwing as much weapons as they can at Ukraine, you know, save us all, Ukraine, here you go. And in Myanmar, like, you know, it's a crime, like you're illegally buying weapons on a black market. I mean, just the double standard is incredible. Like it's it's actually absolutely. absolutely. I think that the Ukraine crisis makeups are opening our eyes, I think you know, how they do, how they react to Europe. And I think, well, I shouldn't say this is an opportunity for us because, you know, the, the people are dying in Ukraine and people are fleeing, the millions of people are fleeing and I have all the sympathy to some, but this is a big lesson for us. How can we be brave differently? So I think that's a good lesson learned for us. I never think it is too late for us. I think we will come back. I hope so. But it took a little bit of more than one year. is is too long. People are suffering inside and outside now. Yeah, and it is, it's so long. And it's like, I even just yesterday, I was talking to a person from Germany and a person from Romania, as it happened. And as, as whenever you meet somebody new and you're introduced, they're like, oh, where are you from? And how are you here? And then I mentioned Myanmar. And they're like, is that still going on? What's going on over there? Oh, there was something a year ago. And I'm like, no, it's still happening right now, like every day. And like, it, there's just no, it's not in the media. And unless you bump into me and I talk to you for an hour and now you're an expert, like you don't know about it. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And I think the media have a responsibility here as well. I mean, they can choose what they put in their papers, you know, and it, it infuriates me, the stupid things they put in there and then nothing on Myanmar. So you know, we could collectively, as people, keep talking about it, telling people about it. But we need the media and journalists to step up, too, and write about it and get it out there. And then if people know, then they are moved to want to help. But if they don't know something is happening, they're never going to step up and help. So we forget that ordinary people hold all the power. Like there's billions and billions of us. And if we can collectively come together. But we are caught in this world where we're divided all the time on every little issue and we're distracted. Um, so, yeah, I think the media have a role to play, too. And they've been really disappointing in terms of the coverage of Myanmar. You give me an idea. I think 
because we all ordinary people can speak up more. You know, sort of the story of the two years old, the story of a family, the story of the mother of the you know, NLD uh, parliament member, and the story of all this ordinary people. And I here said the other day, you know, I was born as a refugee and I was fleeing all the time. I'm now 90 years old. I'm still fleeing my home. So I'm still born as a refugee, dying as a refugee and over 80 years of his life. So I think all these stories are really ordinary, touchy stories. I think media could be interested. So I think we can make more human story and the people are aware of it. When the people are aware of it, maybe the local local politician could be sensitive to this and bring it a little bit more in the center and, you know, how we can bring maybe a little bit more political and the economical interest behind not only the human story, but we have to raise these voices heart, these stories, you know, told in the media, these also the human stories. Maybe we can do films and the movies and the short stories, something like that, you know, we have to really bring back. Otherwise, you know, Afghanistan, you know, the same story. Nothing in the media. They all are suffering too. I feel like the media is very, very much politically aligned. But as Suzanne just said, that the people outnumbered them. And we're at an era now, technology-wise, social media-wise, that our voices actually spread so fast. When things go viral, I mean, stupid stuff that goes viral in terms of, you know, all kinds of superficial crap. If we focused as a humanity internationally on sharing these stories, I mean, you can't just scroll past a story of a two-year-old dying in prison. It's it just what kind of human can scroll past that? And the people on the ground in Myanmar that are so brave to get these stories out because one of the first things the military did was clamp down on media and on people telling this news, on people writing this news. But your everyday ordinary person that can get it out is sharing it. And something that we can do as your everyday normal lay person is make sure that we are spreading, we are making the news rather than just being dominated by media, political incentive. I mean, we're just bombarded in the UK with Ukraine right now, who I massively sympathise with. But there's a political objective why we are, whereas the, the news that we care about, we can spread and we can make sure that people that only go on social media to look at fancy hairstyles, they're actually seeing the reality of what some people's existence is and the power of things that they could actually do to change. So I don't have a lot of faith in the media. But I have faith in the people, like, <laughs> flooding the media channels where possible. Absolutely true, yes. I'm just realising we talk about media and these new social media, and we've got things like Telegram, which are Russian Russian <laughs> uh, social media <laughs> platforms that are, like, you know, giving huge platforms to these military accounts. And it's, it's another it's another story. We've got an episode on Telegram and how horrible it is, but... Like it, it's incredibly frustrating because there's so much horror in the world and people don't have the capacity to see that all day and to, to deal with it. But we need some huge collective change in the world in terms of our shared humanity and looking after each other. And it's incredibly frustrating. And even Ukraine now, that will disappear from the news too. The, the news, the news will tire of that story too in, in time. So. They will be where we're at now with Myanmar, you know, and they will be like, no one is talking about us, you know, again. It is frustrating, but I mean, we have to keep inspiring ourselves to keep going, keep talking about Myanmar and uh, the diaspora to keep doing their part. Um, but we need those key international governments and organizations to have the power to make change happen, to, to help us out a bit, like to to step up. But yeah, if Putin drops a nuke, maybe none of it will matter. I don't know. 
That's the, the crazy situation we're in right now. Yeah, keep talking, keep advocating, keep informing and keep educating is what we can do at least. And we cannot do, you know, without you. And we, we, we all can work together, you know, bringing something justice and at least the fundamental human rights uh, to these people. I think we already have some norm changes by this resistance, you know, since one year, you know, the role of LGBT and the role of women, you know, and, you know, that's a sort of a mentality evolution and which is extremely positive. So nothing can stop us thinking differently now. The role of education, how we had been brainwashed. And I think we now realize everything. And we know that education is the only way to get rid of in long term. However, so far the schools are closed and school teachers are hiding and schools are not safe. For this urgent issue, I think we can bring it to the media. We can bring it to the heroes of the politicians and the government. And this is really important. And we need to really advocate this. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think that the positive things that have come out of this is the, is the collective mindset and the change of the people. I mean, and when people say to me, oh, like, I don't know about NUG and they're this and they're that. And I'm like, it doesn't matter because no one will accept them if they do not live up to their promises. Because, you know, people are dying for something far, far better right now in Myanmar. And they will they will hold their politicians uh, to their word when the time comes. But for now, it's the solution. It, it's We need to get behind the national unity government at this time. Yes. Uh, there's no two ways about it. And if later, you know, I don't think the people will accept if they decide that it's all a lie and look, we're no better than the dictators. They, they, they will they will be overthrown and they will be gone too. You know, no one is going to tolerate that. But it, it seems promising these shifts and these changes. But of course, you have a, a military institution that's like in every aspect of Myanmar life. And it's going to take a long time to try to undo that. It's, it's not overnight, but there are positives. I just, it's how much longer is this going to go on? And, you know, how many people are going to continue to die and lose everything in the meantime? So it's, it's trying to, trying to get the urgency of it across to, to those who have the power to help us here um, and to our governments and to people. It's just frustrating. But do you have any last words or message or something you'd like to say? I think please keep on. And I think the hope is still there. And uh, I believe that we will win. And that will be a big move and a big change. And uh, we will survive and we will we will be powerful again, I think, the Burmese people. And that's a question of time. And we are heading to this. Please keep on supporting us to the energy. We know that energy may not be the best or their optimal phase, but this is the only solution we can get out of the, this crisis in Myanmar. So please continue your support to energy and to the Burmese diaspora and the Burmese people and spread the information. Please do whatever you can. And I do believe this and we will, we will certainly heading to the victory and, and it's a question of time. And I don't really think it will be long. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. 
Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.